Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, a lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And also our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. That's me. You guys, I'm really excited to tell you about my new product. It's the Bored Pelican Yacht Club. It's a line of NFTs, Uh and they are pelicans that are not enthusiastic unattractive, (laughs) uh, but extraordinarily valuable. And you know how I know that they're so valuable? Because you said so. That's right. I said so. I said that they are. What a smart business plan that you made. I know. I'm really excited about it. As members of uh, SciShow Tangents, the podcast, Uh you two actually get a board pelican for... Maybe let's say 95% off, which means they're only $5,000 a piece. (laughs) The listeners of this podcast can get them for 25% off, but uh, you can do the math for how much money that's going to be. It's a lot. Uh, I need one. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, What color do you want its eye lasers to be? I would love it to have very pink eye lasers. Pink Mm. eye lasers. Okay. Yeah. I would like neon green. Neon green. Do you want your board pelican to be Mm. in a suit of armor or a sailor's outfit? Is that the only two choices? Yes. (laughs) Sailor's outfit, please. 
how much extra would I have to pay for a mermaid costume for my bored pelican? <laughs> you know, a completely reasonable amount because this isn't an amount you're paying. It's an investment in the future. Yeah. When you sell that one, it's going to be worth so much money that it won't matter how much you spend now. So it's going to be a lot, but it's just like it being in the stock market. I think the fact that you even asked how much it would cost means you're not ready for it, Sarah. Sorry. You're not ready. That's true. I gotta <laughs> just demand it. No one else can take this art from me. Yeah. It's mine. Mm-hmm. And it is a mermaid pelican and it does yes. have neon green laser beams shooting out of its eyes. Is it, though, drinking a decaf Americano or smoking a big old blunt? I was gonna say, if mine's not smoking a big old blunt. <laughs> then I'm not buying. So obviously, <laughs> you could light the blunt with your eye lasers. It would be perfect. Oh, yeah. It's so big that you can you could just look at it. Just look at it. Yeah. <laughs> While it's in your mouth. Yeah. I don't know how blunts work. I don't know if I really even know what a blunt is. It's a, it's a way to smoke leaves of, yeah. I think it's a big, it's like leaves rolled in paper. Don't correct me. That's yeah. all I think. You can make a blunt like right now by going outside, gathering some mushy leaves, uh-huh. rolling it in paper and being like, here I got it. Oh, God. Well, every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks and for Bored Pelicans, which we'll be awarding as we play. And at the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner, and you'll get a fractional ownership of one Bored Pelican. We had to set up a DAO so that you could get (laughs) one five hundredth of the Pelican. Now there's real skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, this is the 50th episode of the third season of SciShow Tangents. That means there's only three episodes, including this one, left until season four. So starting this episode, we're going to count down to our big season three finale, which will be, spoiler alert, all about butts. But until then, we're going to be exploring some less butt-like parts of the body, starting with the exact opposite of the butt, which we will introduce with this week's science poem from Sam. Gather round and I'll explain him the glory of the good old cranium. Ooh, nice. <laughs> a feature of most creatures' bodies that you couldn't call extraneous. <laughs> Mouth and eyes are features fairly common when we're considering the noggin. But ears can be there and often hair. The possibilities are boggling. When you need to hear or see or scream, you can depend upon your being. For it has holes. And these holes' goals are to help you with your daily routine. It's the opposite of your butt, that blessed brain-filled coconut. It helps you think and helps you chew. What it can't do, I don't know what. From bee to mouse, giraffe and poodle, we all rely on our think and noodle. <laughs> the home of intentions and inventions from the bicycle to apple strudel. Oh. And that is all my poem's been said. A poem for our beloved head. To it we owe a debt most deady. Because without it, we'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> a deady debt. This mm-hmm. week's topic is heads. Um. You know, at first I thought, we don't need to talk to Sari about what heads are. And now, <laughs> a mere 10 seconds later, I'm having a crisis about what heads are. Uh-oh. Yep. That was my thought, too. I was like, oh, this is, uh, biologists have got this. And then I started looking into this, and it was like, biologists have not got this. <laughs> Doesn't seem like they have anything uh, ever. No. They didn't have birds of prey. <laughs> I know what my head is. We know what our heads are. We know what, like, a lot of mammals' heads, <laughs> sure, very yeah. clear. Mm-hmm, but yeah. then it's, you start to get into invertebrates mm-hmm. or animals where the body plan is less head butt 
mm-hmm. continuum. And <laughs> right. you're not sure where the head ends and the, the torso begins, etc. You don't have to have a head. No. Plenty of animals don't have no. heads. Jellyfish. Great example. Starfish don't have head. But worm have head. And yeah. worms have head, yeah. And uh, I feel like once you put eyes on it, I'm like, that's a head now. But mouth doesn't count as head. Just mouth so like on a its own. Sea anemone. Yeah. Not a head. No. Just a hole. Do worms have eyes? Sometimes. Sometimes. Hmm. Okay. But I feel like the only reason a worm has a head if it doesn't have eyes is just because like its body is long. Whereas like a starfish <laughs> has a mouth and it has a butt and they're on different sides of its body. So then like it's just a really short tube, and then you should be able to say that a starfish has a head, but it definitely doesn't. Okay, well, interesting. The The point of head that I'm getting to is that it's like a concentrated node of things. So particularly mm. nerves. So like nervous tissues like the brain and humans mm. and many other mammals. But if in, in um, organisms like a jellyfish, it's more of like a nerve net, like really distributed. But as soon as it gets kind of more concentrated, then we're like, oh, that's kind of the head region. Mm-hmm. And usually along with that cluster of nerves comes a bunch of sensory organs. So like eyes, mouth, nose, all the seeing, tasting, touching, hearing, and whatnot, because Mm -hmm. it's handy to have those nearby the clusters of nerves. So you don't have to send signals all the way from one, one end of your body to the other. Are there definitely areas where it gets super fuzzy? Is it worms? Cause worms are giving me the most trouble as I'm thinking. One thing you need to know when I say worms is that I don't mean any specific kind of animal. I mean, any animal that is long, which uh, well, no. <laughs> worms. You don't mean snakes, do you? <laughs> no. Worm is another problem. There is Worms are just invertebrates that are long, and they are not related <laughs> to each other, but they are all called worms. What the hell? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and because of that, there are lots of worms that have very different situations on the top of the front end mm-hmm. where the food mm-hmm. goes in. That's the main thing that makes it the front end. And it makes sense that like... Like nervous tissues and and sensory organs would cluster up there because that's where you got to find the food from. And the rest mm-hmm. of the body is just for moving around and processing the food into worm. So, but like eventually I feel like it just, there's not enough going on up there for it to be a head. Do biologists even worry about heads? Do they use that as a thing to even classify? Or is that just Definitely us? in some the organisms, regular. but not but not like across, I don't think across a bunch of different species. They right. I think it's more... An interesting question of like evolutionary his- history. Mm. So mm. the the idea, like the study of head formation, is called cephalization. Oh, maybe that's not the study of. When you want to know how heads came about, you study cephalization, which is like over many generations, these different facets of creatures migrated to one right. end of them and formed a head. So it was like the <laughs> the appearance of heads in evolutionary time. And like where it gets kind of fuzzy to answer your question, Hank, is I think the invertebrate chordates. So uh, a notochord is like one thing. It sets apart chordates. It's like not quite a spine. So you can't consider it a vertebrate, but it's Mm -hmm. like a central nervous tract. Sure. Like one step below vertebrates are the invertebrate chordates, which are like um, if you Google tunicates, they're kind of like tubes (laughs) and sometimes they're like little guys that can move around i think too but they're (laughs) cute they're tubes Mm -hmm. those are invertebrate chordates and scientists are pretty sure like those have heads but how those and and other creatures like those invertebrate chordates then involve evolved into vertebrates which 
have then a bony skull and a head that's clearly separated from a body mm-hmm. is a very big question in evolutionary biology. And so somewhere in that is the gray area, I think, of like, how did you we go from kind of blobby mouth on one end to worm and then to... Well, you got bone in the worm, so snake, <laughs> and then you got <laughs> that's what happened. That's, that's, how it bone. Happened. <laughs> that's, wow. that's how evolution happened. You went right from swarm to, <laughs> worm to snake to person. This is the no one argue, okay? <laughs> uh, please tell me, head has an interesting uh, origin for the word. It's a funny word. It is kind of. Uh, the English word head, at least, has been used throughout Germanic languages and has been relatively the same, I think, with a huh sound at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So like Old English, and I, I'm just going to say the letters. This is probably not how you pronounce it. It's hayfod, which is the top of the body or like the upper end of a slope. So mm-hmm. it means like top or like a, an important person, like a ruler. Ah. Um And there's a lot of, like, H starting words. But the Proto-Indo-European root, so, like, when they mathematically go backwards, uh, it's kaput, (laughs) which I think is kind of funny. And that is where it kind of gets more interesting because, like, all the words that are linguistically related to head feel like, I guess that makes sense. But looking at the list, it's a very odd collection. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example... Cabbage, cape, mm-hmm. capo, like the guitar thing, huh. um, cattle. A head of cattle. Yeah, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Kerchief, mischief, which is like <laughs> this mischief, is, like yeah. chief, precipitation, triceps. Just so like a weird thing that all go back to head somehow. Huh. Do you want to head into the game show portion of the show? Okay. Yes, please. Because this game is called Whose Head Is It Anyway? Okay, I'm in now. (laughs) So imagine you're on a hike through the wilderness, or maybe you're swimming through the ocean. You're in a natural place. All around you are exciting bits of nature, like weird plants popping out of the ground, strange rocks. Then imagine you come across some bones. And when you look closer, you realize that you have found a skull. The question is, whose head did that skull come from? Today we're going to play Whose Head Is It Anyway, where you both will be playing Skull Detective. I'm going to describe a skull gold to you and based on all those helpful clues you're going to try and guess what animal it came from whoever guesses closest based on my own definition of close will win the point <laughs> are you ready i've never been more excited in my life um i'm going to try and do this based on sort of taxonomy so if you get close to the to the relationship between the species you choose and the actual one we're going to start with round number one the skull you have found is long it's almost two feet long and its shape is elongated with a prominent beak at the end with 106 teeth lining its jaws. But the most striking part is what's going on at the top of the head. First, there are nostrils pointing upward. Second, the bones of the face and the forehead have slipped on top of each other, overlapping and collapsing like segments of a telescope. So whose head is it? Two wow. feet long? Two feet long. Uh, I'm going to guess a toucan. A toucan. Has 106 teeth. You know, Uh taxonomically (laughs) close. I'm going to (laughs) guess something. It's either a bird or a reptile. And I guess Sam could get closer by guessing a reptile. Okay. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, what about the duck-billed dinosaur guy? You know? Duck-billed dinosaur guy. A myosaurus. Is that a duck-billed dinosaur guy? I don't know. I don't know either. I'm going (laughs) to guess that, though. (laughs) 
Oh boy. <laughs> Where does the duckbilled dinosaur live, Sam? Uh, swampy water. Okay, I'm going to go with Sam because the animal I have described to you is a bottlenose dolphin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like that. It just seems more <laughs> dolphin-y to be a myosaurus than a toucan. Anyway, congratulations, Sam. You guys really, really rocked that one. Uh, I will say, <laughs> um, dolphins and cetaceans have very odd skulls. Of course, their noses point upward because they have blowholes. And when cetaceans are developing in the womb, they actually initially have a more forward-facing nose like other animals. But as the baby uh, continues to develop, the nose moves upwards and transforms into a blowhole. So it's like you can watch this happen embryonically. Weirdly, despite the fact that they go through this transformation while developing, the way that the bones move in the skull to make this transformation differs between dolphins and whales. As for the telescoping forehead, there are references to this in people's observations of cetacean skulls going back uh, at least 100 years, but researchers still don't know why it happens. Some think that it is the result of whales and dolphins swimming through the water, and the water pushes back on their heads and forces the bones to overlap, but researchers studying skull development have seen that skull bones actually begin forming that overlap in the womb. So we just don't know. Wow. Anyway, round number two. Are you ready? This skull's width is just shy of two inches, so a lot smaller, but it's wide enough to accommodate a very large gaping mouth that allows this animal to ambush and eat vertebrates that are the same size that it is. While some of its relatives don't have teeth on their lower jaw, this particular species has fang-like structures there that help it chomp down on its prey, and just above it are small, pointy structures that look a bit like horns. Whose head is this? Has horns on its head? Yeah. Worm. Some kind of worm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like one of those, like, uh, sits, sits. What are those worms that have bones? Cecilians? Yes. Cecilians. That's what I'm guessing. All right. Um, I'm going to guess a toad. Because <gasps> it's oh, a toad. It. I thought Sam had that because Sicilians are, are amphibians. So I was like, way to go, oh. Sam. But no, it is the horned tree frog. It's not actually a toad, but it is, a, you know, what's a toad? <laughs> <laughs> Most frogs have like really smooth skulls, but these frogs have much bumpier and they have more patterns. Uh, it's a trait called hyperossification. Scientists mm. have found that this uh, evolved more than 25 different times in frogs and that species with similar feeding habits and defenses ended up with similar patterns and shapes on their skulls. In particular, hyperossification tends to be connected to frogs that like to eat big things or that would use their heads to protect themselves, a bit like our South American horned tree frog, which can eat animals that are as big as them. And even these small South American horned tree frogs can pack a huge bite. One study found that even a small frog whose head is just 45 millimeters wide has a bite with a force of 30 newtons. That's like balancing three liters of water on the end of your fingernail. Larger horned frogs whose heads can be more like 100 millimeters wide can bite with 51 liters of water on the end of your fingertips. So watch out. What are they eating? Mice and stuff? Yeah, like little mammals. whatever they can get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I found a picture of one that's just swallowed a mouse. I love frogs. Oh, <laughs> another life. <laughs> All right. It's time to see who's going to come out on top here or if it's going to end up in a tie because it's round three. This skull is around three inches long, but it has more than a dozen moving parts. 
These different parts of the skull are connected through joints and ligaments. So even if the skull you're looking at belongs to a dead animal, you can move these different parts around, bringing to life the flexible motion that allowed the animal to suction food and move it through the mouth without a flexible tongue to guide it. So whose head is it? I think I know. Really? You think you know? Yeah. I think Sari got to go first. (sighs) Okay. This is like the direction of research I was headed in from my fact, Mm. but I don't remember what animal, because I was really interested in in like flexible skulls, Mm. how snakes have flexible skulls Mm -hmm. and and parrots do. And I couldn't find a fact that fit in. I think it's, I think it's an eel. I think it's an eel. I'm getting more worried that I don't know. Okay. okay, What do you think it is? (laughs) I think it's a... Human baby. A human baby. Yeah. No. I need to call the police because I found a human baby skull. <laughs> Sarah's coming away with this one because that, my friends, is a catfish. Uh, in ah. particular, it's a channel catfish. Now, fish have lots of bones in their heads. Um, I've just got to move on from this baby skull as fast well, as I because can. because they're <laughs> flexible and because That's they true. have their things all organized That's different true. so they can suck differently when oh, they're babies. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's all true. right. Babies do That's suck. Yeah, babies <laughs> suck. So fish have a lot of bones in their heads uh, and fewer fusions compared with other vertebrates, which allows them some flexibility and how... They, they use their head when hunting prey. In fact, one of the highest number of skull bones that scientists have ever found comes from an extinct fish that had 156 bones in its head. Scientists studying channel catfish have found that these bones are able to move in a coordinated way to create the suction that the fish use to capture their prey, though they are much less coordinated when the catfish is actually swallowing the prey. That result points to the need for different levels of coordination in suction versus swallowing, well, it's not clear what drives the difference between the coordination of those bones for that those different tasks. So good. It, it has got to expand their whole head to suck those things into his mouth. So much trouble just to suck mud off the bottom of a pond. Gross. What yeah. a life. What a life. But look, they probably have fewer days where they are just unhappy for no reason than I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really good point. <laughs> Well, that was a fun game, and Sari came out on top. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then it will be time for the Fact Off. Sideshow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow. If if there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond 
I mean beans. And beyond subscription canceling, <laughs> Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users, and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use you- that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans, cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Miriam Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Miriam Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. (laughs) 
Welcome back, everybody. It's time for the Fact Off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented their facts, I will judge them and I will award Hank Bucks any way I see fit, mostly based on whether or not the topic in question would make a good TikTok. But to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. To make better crash test dummies, we need to measure the size of the human head, the average human head ideally of people of different ages and genders. And often people donate their bodies to research when they're done and they can be like really accessible ways to measure heads. But death and embalming practices can change the size of a person's head. So how much does the radius of an adult human head change after embalming? (laughs) Get bigger or get smaller? We don't know. I think that it gets bigger. And what units are we supposed to give our our answers? You know, uh, let's do it in in millimeters. Oh shit! Okay. I don't know what that is. Okay, <laughs> small. Sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna say five millimeters. Five millimeters for Sari. Ten. I'm saying ten. Uh well, I'm gonna go ahead and say that Sari Riley won this round because it's three point five. Yeah, ten would be a lot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So, Sarah, that means you get to decide who goes first. I'll go first. Okay. Um, I just want to preface my fact with a warning that I'm going to talk about an infectious viral disease, which maybe is not the escape that people want from tangents, (laughs) but I think this is extremely cool and weird and gross, but no worries if it's not for you right now. So if you want to skip my fact and just go to Sam's, you can. That being said, specifically, the viral disease I want to talk about is rabies. (laughs) It's a virus that infects animals, particularly mammals, spread by biting or scratching each other, and humans infected with the rabies virus get nervous system damage and symptoms like nausea, violent movements, or a fear of water. And if you don't receive an expensive vaccine in time, it's usually fatal. Uh, Needless to say, it's a very bad disease, and in many parts of the world, it has been controlled or is being controlled thanks to widespread animal treatment plans. Sometimes those plans involve hunting animals, and sometimes they involve the old public health staple vaccination. So catch-and-release programs involving wild animals and injectable vaccines can be unruly and expensive, but there's one method we've been using across the world since the 1970s. Hiding an oral form of the rabies vaccine in a delicious, nutritious, decapitated chicken head. The earliest instance of researchers trying this out that I could find was in Switzerland in 1971 when they were trying to battle rabies outbreaks in red foxes and, as such, rabies that was plaguing any livestock or humans that came in contact with their spit. The scientists developed an oral vaccine of a live but weakened rabies virus strain and tested a bunch of different tasty morsels as bait for the foxes, like sausages or dog biscuits. But the most tempting treat ended up being a straight-up chicken head with a vaccine (laughs) capsule shoved inside, kind of like a really gnarly pill pocket. I mean, I like this because it's like there's no shortage of chicken heads. Yeah, what else are you going to do with them? And also I like it because if a fox wants to eat a chicken head, it's not going to eat part of a chicken head. You know, there's not like an option to... To, like, pick at it. You just, like, there's only one way to eat this. It's to put it in my mouth and crunch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even whether they swallowed the heads or just gnawed on them and got, like, the vaccine goop along with the chicken goop, mm-hmm. uh, it worked. In October 1978, after fine-tuning their methods, 
these researchers started scattering thousands of chicken heads across Switzerland nice. by flinging them onto walking paths, roads, and from <laughs> helicopters. And despite lots of public worries that these live but weekend virus stuffed chicken heads would actually spread more rabies, oh, yeah. it continued to work. Yeah. And we knew it worked because there was a chemical marker included in the oral vaccine that researchers could detect mm. in captured foxes okay. to prove that they were eating the vaccine through the chicken head delivery mechanism. So the program thrived with over 62,000 chicken heads getting scattered <sighs> between 1978 and 1982 and hundreds of thousands more to come. And as more countries have adopted oral rabies vaccines for wild animals, they're trying out different bait like mass-produced meat or fish tablets. But the chicken head method is still going strong. For example, why why would 19- they try something else? It's working. And everyone has too many chicken heads. There is no country on earth that has like not enough chicken. They're like, oh, we ran out. No, you never run out of chicken heads. We eat so much chicken. I think they want to mass produce something else. They don't want to yeah. stuff pills into chicken heads. I, I think guess, that's probably maybe, it. They yeah. want nasty. But yeah, so even despite sentiments like that, it's yeah. still going. Uh, a 1998 study on oral vaccines for rabid dogs in Tunisia, for example, found chicken head baits to be appealing to populations of dogs across different geographic and socioeconomic regions. And a 2020 study that tested out different baits for rabid jackals in South Africa tested out fish meal, pieces of red meat, and chicken heads. And the chicken heads won. They're a classic. Yum, yum. Everybody loves them. <laughs> they love the tasty treat. Um, so apparently there is something just so enticing about this grody poultry industry waste product uh that makes it super good for fighting rabies around the world or at least tricking hungry wild animals into getting an oral vaccine Woohoo! now let's we could only do it to people uh, <laughs> yeah what's the people equivalent of chicken head <laughs> i mean uh, a chicken nugget <laughs> like yeah I, I know exactly what it is all right sam what do you got one of the greatest things about having a head is wearing hats Cool hats, so. funny hats, uh-huh. hats that keep you warm. Hats are one of the greatest inventions humans have ever thought up. <laughs> Unfortunately, seemingly no other species on Earth has unlocked hat technology. But recent <laughs> research has found that another animal may be making their first steps into the world of hats. And the question is whether they're doing it in pursuit of function or fashion. Ooh. So in 2007, a biologist was observing crocodiles in India when he noted that some of them had sticks balanced on their heads and snouts. And every now and then a bird would swoop over and try to take a stick away from the crocodile. And the crocodile would snap at the bird and try to catch it. The scientist never saw the crocodile successfully catch a bird with this method, but it got the old science wheels turning in his brain. So he started observing American alligators and witnessed the same stick-on-head behavior. And in 2013, a study of his findings about this behavior was published. Specifically, the paper noted that alligators that lived near large groups of birds would float around with sticks on their heads during the time periods (laughs) when the birds were building their nests. So the alligators seemed to have, according to the paper, worked out that birds are desperate for sticks during these times. And I guess the birds either just aren't paying attention or they're more likely to make bad decisions and then alligator lunchtime. Meanwhile, the report also suggested that alligators that don't live near birds weren't seen with sticks on their heads. So it sort of stood to reason that the stick on head thing was a conscious decision based on the bird's presence on the part of the alligators. Mm. Now to our human brains, that might seem like an easy trick, 
but it might just constitute the first ever recorded instance of tool use in reptiles. And the use of bait, like the stick, is even rarer than tool use. So that means that alligators might just be smarter than we think, which is already pretty smart because they like raise their their young and stuff like that. But it might also mean that non-avian dinosaur ancestors of alligators and crocodiles might have used tools and also have been smarter than we think. Mm. However... As often happens when eggheads are involved, Pretty girl. another group of scientists came along in 2019 to shed some doubt on the whole hat situation. Oh. So for one thing, and you might have noticed while I was talking, apparently, according to these second researchers, the original paper doesn't document any alligators actually catching any birds. And I couldn't read the paper because it was paywalled. But yeah, a couple of the articles I read describe the alligator catching a bird but apparently that's not in the paper that's just like conjecture on the part of the person writing the article but i couldn't confirm that so this new team observed alligators but this this new team said that that was the case and so they observed alligators at two alligator farms one near a bunch of birds and one not so they threw a bunch of sticks to the alligators and what they (laughs) found was that alligators at both locations seemed to just like putting sticks on their heads They described it. They described it as the alligators displaying the sticks, and it didn't really say what that means. But I guess they were like, "I got a stick on my head." But they didn't see any evidence that the alligators were specifically targeting birds with this ploy because they were both doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they might have just been doing it for fun. So wearing hats for fun or some other reason is also tool use, I think, probably. But the question as to why they do it seems to be entirely up in the air, like the birds are trying to eat. And I don't really know (laughs) what the takeaway of all this is. Like they were testing alligators in a gator farm, and that seems significant to me for some reason. Like they might know different stuff. But either way, alligators might be inventing alligator hats right before our eyes, and that's all I really need to know. Uh, I mean, they're doing it awfully slowly, considering alligators have, have <laughs> been basically around been around time. the whole time. I feel like if <laughs> alligators are wearing hats now, they were wearing hats 60 million years ago. Like, uh, there's yeah, not, you're probably right. <laughs> but I, well, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I, I'm looking at pictures of alligators wearing They look hats. so stupid. Huh? And I have to say, like... <laughs> It clearly is on purpose. Like, there's no yeah. one can say, oops, like he just ran into some sticks. No, I have like, six twigs. I have I put six a bunch sticks of on my head now. Sticks on my head on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Why? Don't ask questions. I'm an alligator. I will hurt you. <laughs> I'll eat you. <laughs> Fashion. All right. So I have to choose between alligators invented hats. We don't know whether they just like it or they're using it for <laughs> murder or wild animals are frequently vaccinated against rabies with medicated chicken heads. <laughs> Which <laughs> of these head facts do I, will I choose? This is hard. Uh. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I have to go with the hats. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are really cute. I chicken heads I, don't look. Chicken cute. Are, there's nothing much less cute than a chicken head. <laughs> I gotta go with cute hats, but that creates a problem. Because that means that it's Sari was headed into the lead. Mm-hmm. So now, is it good enough to overtake Sari? Sam, are you going to buy one of my Pelican NFTs? I, I, I can't afford not to, honestly. All right. <laughs> Sam's the winner of the episode. <laughs> Hank already knew my answer was no. <laughs> looked into my eyes and was like, this bitch isn't going to buy a single NFT in her entire life. <laughs> All right, it is time to ask the science couch. We've got listener questions for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. It's from LarryKin.fm on Twitter who asks, How is there a blood-brain barrier if there's blood in my brain? 
<laughs> That's a great point. It is an incorrectly named thing. The blood brain berry. I think. Is it? Sari, is it? It's not like a, a saran wrap around your okay, brain, good. unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, because I feel like I do have oxygen, some oxygen in my brain. <laughs> yes, you need it there. Yeah. So I'd be very concerning if you had like a, yeah. a hermetically sealed brain. So what? We, where's the barrier that keeps all of the pathogens out of my brain tissue? So to, to understand the barrier, you have to understand how blood vessels work. So your entire body isn't just bathed in blood. Uh, the whole point of your cardiovascular <laughs> system is to pump the blood around your body and then through the walls of the blood vessels, particularly the the small thin ones like capillaries. Mm-hmm. Those do nutrient exchange and oxygen exchange and carbon dioxide exchange with the other cells in your body. So like more vascularized tissue have more little blood vessels running through it and then through diffusion through the walls of the blood vessels is how things get back and forth. And the blood-brain barrier, uh, your your brain needs nutrients and it needs oxygen and it needs some of this stuff, but you just want to protect it from more of the bad stuff from the rest of your body because your brain's so important. And like your nervous system in general is like, if something goes wrong there, a lot of things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's a like several different layers of anatomy on those capillaries that make it really hard for um, molecules that aren't of a certain type to get through. So for entrance into the brain, you need molecules, for the most part, to be lipid-soluble, less than 400 Daltons, which is like a measure of size, and like substrates of a certain type of transporter. So there are like transporters within the the blood vessels. and and basically, like, there's all this mechanism with um, certain types of cell junctions that glue cells together, basically. Um, certain types of cells, like astrocytes, are wrapped around. So not quite saran wrap, but there's, like, a layers of cells that aren't present in other tissues. Um, and certain transporters that basically act as many layers of security guards to make sure that only the nutrients that you want to get to your nervous system, to your brain, get there. But that being said, some things like fit those criteria, like ethanol, for example, is lipid soluble enough to get past the blood brain barrier and into your brain, which is why like drunkenness happens. Um, And certain small molecule drugs may cross the blood brain barrier uh, because of this like lipid mediation diffusion. And it's a challenge. It's like both a characteristic of things that can like affect our central nervous system whether it's like drinking alcohol and it's a criteria if we're trying to develop drugs to like target a central nervous system so a lot of what we develop don't often meet these criteria to pass the blood brain barrier so if you're trying to treat um, a neurological condition you have to somehow cater the drug that you're building to those characteristics to be able to cross it, which is like a very interesting puzzle of like, not only how do we develop this drug to target this disease, but how do we get it past this like logic puzzle sequence, the spy, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, many layers of protection to get to the brain. So the it's not preventing the blood from getting to, the, or at least not preventing the oxygen from getting to the brain. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it's just an extra layer of protection. That also creates problems for pharmaceutical designers. Yeah. 
That's okay. you can just cut my answer and just put that in. <laughs> Save some time. If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShow Tangents, where we will tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShow Tangents Patreon and ask us on Discord. Thanks to James on Discord at Lizard is a Nerd and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. You can go to patreon.com slash SciShow Tangents and become a patron. You can get access to our new Newsletter and our bonus episodes and our Cars 2 commentary where we discover what the inside of a Cars car really looks like. <laughs> and, cars car. And I will tell you, you will be unhappy with what we discover. You'll never be the same again. <laughs> you can also leave us a review wherever you listen or just a rating. That, that's helpful. Helps us know what you like about the show and other people get to find out how great we are. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Wright. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Pieto. Our editorial assistants are Deboki Chakravarti and Emma Dowster. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and Hank Green. And we could not make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. It's easy to think about the head and the butt as opposite ends of animals. Uh After all, Uh you don't want to be excreting where you're eating and whatnot. But for the blind, fleshy, pink cavefish in the genus Ambilopsidae, that isn't true. Their anus is on their head, probably because their reproductive hole, called a vent, migrated across evolutionary time and brought the anus along with it. Uh-oh. These little weirdos <laughs> probably have head vents because they incubate their babies in their gills, and it's safer if the eggs travel a shorter uh-huh. distance from hole to nursery. Mm-hmm. So I guess they found a parenting strategy that works for their extreme environment, but as a consequence, they're quite literally buttheads. <laughs> My phone was wrong. It's not the opposite. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Look, why doesn't everything happen up here? Just need a head and then a body and then all the everything, all the holes on the head. You can't have separate holes down the bottom. That's super complicated. Yeah, you just need a head with little legs at the bottom of it. Uh And your butt can be at the back at the bottom of your head. And I've just designed the perfect organism. Maybe I have big arms, too. Oh, grab stuff off of shelves. Can I buy an NFT of that? Yeah, I'm making them right now. I mean, it does seem inevitable. (laughs) If you have had an ugly thought, if you have a picture of an ugly (laughs) thing in your mind, (laughs) that's that's just waiting to be a toothy NFT. Oh, no, you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) 